0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: (laughs) This is New Books Network in Genocide Studies, a channel on New Books Network. I'm Susan Thompson of Colgate University. My guest today is Jeff Backman of the American University School of International Service. And boy, oh boy, has Jeff written a must-read book. It is The Politics of Genocide, From the Genocide Convention to the Responsibility to Protect published by Rutgers in 2022. The book starts with an analysis of the processes that led to the adoption of the United Nations Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide in December 1948. It ends with a call of the quote-unquote self-perpetuating implications of Western impunity for genocidal violence both at home and abroad. Bachman narrows in on the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council to highlight the structural inequality baked into the Genocide Convention. The P5, of course, are China, France, Russia, the UK, and the United States. The result is a cogent and devastating evaluation of the ways in which Western powers of the P5, the U.S. in particular, are assumed to act in good faith when it comes to preventing and punishing acts of genocide. As the book progresses, Backman convincingly and in accessible prose demonstrates how and why members of the P5 have achieved perpetual impunity for the crime of genocide, situating its prevention in a system of territorial jurisdiction. He finds that members of the P5 have strategically and consistently shielded themselves from prosecution for genocide at home and those committed by ally or client states. And the P5 has concentrated controlled security council to both name genocide while moving the responsibility to protect away from the P-5 membership. Bachman com- concludes by naming P-5 states as quote-unquote outlaws, as they have often, individually and sometimes collectively, ex- exploited their Security Council seats to ensure they are not subject to the genocide convention. Then using the responsibility to protect doctrine, Bachman demonstrates the myriad ways in which P5 members control the narrative of what is and is not genocide and what the UN can or cannot, or as we'll see, will not do when situations like Pakistan in 1971, Bosnia 1991 to 1995, and Rwanda in 1994 are on the Security Council agenda. In so doing, Bachman eloquently and convincingly demonstrates that outlaw states are not just those that fail to comply with international law, but that they also work to ensure they are not bound by their own violations. Jeff, I'm very glad to be speaking with you today. Welcome.
2: Thank you. Thanks for having me. and Thank you for the the warm uh, introduction and uh, kind words about the book.
1: Yeah, it was, it's a book that kind of changed how I think, so I'm very glad to be in conversation um, with you today, and I want to start with a, a researcher question. What brings you to the study of genocide?
2: So uh, this will date myself a little bit, but I was a, a senior in high school in 1994, and I was actually taking a elective history course that was called something like... Um, I don't I don't remember it was something like contemporary histories in Africa or, or, or something like that. And um, you know, while I was in the class, of course, uh, the Rwandan genocide um took place and um you know we didn't get that much into it, um, but we did see uh, and go over a little bit of the media accounts because you know this was um, you know, we're getting kind of deep into uh the 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 marking period and you know that the lack of response stuck with me and it, you know my my thoughts about um you know Rwanda ha- have certainly evolved over the last uh, almost 30 years but um you know what happened and the lack of response did stick with me and um you know when i went to uh when i went to my, for my doctoral studies at northeastern university one of the classes i took at the wall school um was uh, international human rights law. And, um, you know, I revisited uh, the the Rwanda case for a paper and ultimately, um, you know, it led me down a path to what I thought was going to be my my dissertation project, um, which was on applying, you know, the International Criminal Tribunal uh, for Rwanda, their definition of certain crimes to external uh, officials, to actors uh, for the United States, France, and so on. Um, And I was actually told by the director of my program that it wasn't theoretical enough. I had a committee with, you know, a couple of law professors and another faculty member from the university. Um, But, uh, you know, because that didn't work out, it it led me to um, research that actually comes up in in the book, um, which is on the evolution of the genocide convention, specifically uh, the preventive language. There have been a lot of focus on the punitive language, um, but so I wanted to see how uh, the language of the genocide convention changed through the drafting and negotiating process in terms of the the preventive a- aspects um and i know that i'm giving you more information than you asked for but i i to maybe long story short it began with the Rwandan genocide but i also had a lot of um you know Perceptions, I suppose, of, of of the role of the West in violence, um, and then also this led to um, some of the developments that I saw in the Genocide Convention where Western states, in particular the United States, uh, contributed to in some ways, the weakening of the preventive uh, language of the treaty.
1: I actually think your answer is great, because it reminds (laughs) us of the, and you know, the YouTube generation, we can see this in in clips, because of course, things are moving online around the time of the um, Rwandan genocide. We see when Prudence Bushnell and other officials are not keen to name what was happening there genocide, even though through later works, Samantha Power in particular, we really learned what U.S. officials were thinking and doing. So I thought that was a great answer. Um, Yeah, because of course, um, we assume that these laws are passed with a a sense of um, equity and that impunity is not something that is baked into the system, which I think your work does. It's also fascinating to me how much weight and how much role supervisors have in the paths that we eventually take. So thank you for sharing all of that. Um, One thing that makes your book so accessible, in my view, is that it's um, a precise book, very um, carefully and um, smartly written. It's short, 144 pages, but seven chapters, five substantive ones. Can you overview the book for us to get us into the um, conversation, perhaps also with a nod to your method?
2: Sure. So uh, one quick note, uh, because you you mentioned a certain introduction, another sort of motivation behind the research in writing the book was sort of the idea that um you know that the state parties that negotiated the genocide convention did it in in good faith um rather than negotiating it from positions of their own um international interests and um you know, I did a talk, uh, in December, uh, right around the, uh, anniversary of the genocide convention. And I didn't really talk about it in celebratory terms. Um, even though of course it is an accomplishment. Um, but the convention, if we can celebrate the act of codifying, uh, you know, the, you know, the fact that genocide should be prohibited under international law, while also recognizing that, um, you know, should we be celebrating, uh, you know, the, the actors that were involved when they, you know, twisted and pulled from the convention, anything that they thought could implicate them in the crime, which, of course, gets into the, the larger conversation about impunity. Um, but yeah, so the, you know, the book, uh, as you mentioned, the introduction kind of lays out the framework um talks about Lemkin's ideal um you know genocide convention and how that compares to what we ha- actually have uh you know talks a little bit about the the methods and the theoretical influences uh, which i can you know get back to but the you know the first chapter gets into how you know there's this idea that the genocide convention requires state parties to prevent genocide wherever it occurs um but what i argue is the evidence actually shows that the negotiating parties work to ensure that they were only responsible for preventing uh genocide within their own territory and then even if they are you know committing genocide in their own territory uh the rest of the international community is actually prohibited rather than obligated or permitted to uh, intervene in their affairs uh, the second chapter uh is a little bit, uh, you know, a well-worn uh, discussion, um, but I didn't think the book could uh, be what it is without it. And that is the uh, elimination, or, or, sorry, the omission of political groups uh, from the Genocide Convention's protection and the exclusion of the acts that constitute cultural genocide. Um, you know, this is uh, lots of literature on this, but again, it, um, you know, I don't think a book on P5 impunity could be written without it. Uh, the the third chapter gets into the international court of justice's um advisory opinion from 1951 um for our our human rights listeners uh this was a in some ways a monumental decision because not only did it allow reservations to be submitted to the genocide convention reservations meaning uh you know states say essentially are saying this part of the treaty um you know does not um it does not apply to to our relationship to the treaty so for example uh the genocide convention article 9 gives the international court of justice jurisdiction to hear uh disputes between state parties about the interpretation and application of the genocide convention but also uh disputes about whether a state is responsible for the crime of genocide as well as incitement to commit genocide complicity a conspiracy to commit and so on um but not only did those the, the this uh this decision impact the genocide convention but it was also incorporated into the vienna convention on the law of treaties and you know this is what allows states to make reservations to human rights treaties um and, um, you know, there's 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 many, uh, I wouldn't, wouldn't go into the specifics, but um, unless the treaty says, you know, explicitly that reservations are not permitted, uh, this decision essentially allows states to uh, make reservations to human rights treaties. Um, you know, the fourth chapter uh, gets in, into a little bit of, of narrative and how... Uh, The P5 especially controlled the narrative at the Security Council around uh, cases of of suspected genocide, Uh, as you mentioned in the introduction, uh, I included uh, Pakistan, uh, Rwanda. And, uh, well, it's my book and I can't remember Bosnia. Bosnia. Uh, Bosnia thank you. <laughs> thank you in Bosnia. Um, and it's, you know, it's not limited to, to those cases. Um, but those are cases where there was some substantial debate. Um, you know, there are other cases that never even make it onto the security council agenda, like the genocide in Guatemala. Um, and so, um, yeah, uh, the, fifth chapter um actually looks at the responsibility to protect and how it fills some of the textual deficiencies in the genocide convention but nonetheless uh is limited uh due to politics in its application where it's applied who it's applied against and who it's not applied against and then uh you know the, the the final chapter i take this concept that we have in academic literature about outlaw states or rogue states and how we you know typically would understand uh libya or North Korea or Iran or other states as as these outlaw states um but I argue that you know the states that have removed themselves entirely from the reach of the law and that includes the P5 but maybe most uh specifically the United States China and as we can see with Russia um and its ability to ignore the International Court of Justice's um you know provisional measures to stop what it's doing in Ukraine uh we could add Russia to that as well that These states are persistent outlaws, the states that are completely removed and can act uh, against the law or in violation of the law with impunity. And I I don't think the law really regulates their behavior as much as they only um, violate the law when they need to. When they don't violate the law, it's not necessarily because they respect it, but it's because they don't you know, they, they can achieve what they're seeking without violating the law. That is I a hope lot that to wasn't take... too much. Yeah, no, that's a
1: lot to take <laughs> in. Where do I start? Um, I, I'm, well, I'm thinking one thing that I really um, found useful about your book is the use of the concept of legalized hegemony. So you've just described the ways in which through case studies, we see that impunity, it was kind of by design. And one of the arguments that I took away and that I've been teaching to my students is that the legal framework for genocide prevention, but also genocide punishment is not fit for purpose. Um, So what could the UN do? Like, Does it want to? I assume the P5 has no interest in um, engaging the convention and making themselves more accountable. And it seems to me that it's not the UN security itself, it's the concept that you identify of territorial jurisdiction. Can you explain? that
2: to our listeners? Sure. Uh, So quick note on on Jerry Simpson's legalized hegemony. Um, You know, Simpson defines uh, legalized hegemony as, quote, the existence within an international society of a powerful elite of states whose superior status is recognized by minor powers as a political fact giving rise to the existence of certain constitutional privileges, rights and duties. And whose relations with each other are defined by adherence to a rough principle of sovereign equality. Now, if we think about the P5, um, you know, b- constitutional privileges, we could see as being permanent members of the Security Council and uh, veto-wielding members of the Security Council. And so, while the five states have different military capabilities, uh, uh, have different um, GDPs, you know, economic um, power. Uh, political power to a degree when they're at the Security Council being permanent members and having the veto um, set them apart from every other state in the international community every other member from uh, every other member of the the United Nations Um, I think you know the Genocide Convention in that advisory opinion that I mentioned from 1951 um, you know the majority judges talked about the genocide convention as a humanitarian one. Um, But, you know, I think, you know, to try and get to some of, uh, you know, what I think is involved in your question, um, the genocide convention is, uh, is quite exclusionary. Um, So it defines in very rigid terms, uh, a very specific crime that situates all kinds of other forms of violence outside of the convention. Yet we have this one treaty um, that deals with the specific crime. And even then uh, it's very limited in its, uh, its ability to prevent and punish genocide. Um, And I think, you know, as you mentioned, uh, and as I argue, I think this is by design that the P five worked in uh, concert in some cases, um, like getting uh, reservations to be permitted. The United States and the Soviet union, Took different approaches, but the end goal was always the same, and that end goal was that they should be able to dictate uh, what parts of the Genocide Convention apply to them and and what parts do not. Um, you know, the United States was very active in the exclusion of cultural genocide with the support of other colonial powers for for reasons uh, our listeners can probably imagine, such as um, you know the colonial era uh, settler colonialism. Uh, ongoing treatment of indigenous peoples and, and so on. And the UN system was specifically set up for preventive or territorial jurisdiction. Uh, so if we look at uh, the UN Charter, um, Article 21 established the sovereign equality of all states, even though, uh, as I just, you know, argued, um, there is no, the, the states are not all sovereign, are um, equally sovereign, and um, Article 2 forward prohibits the use of force or the threat thereof against the territorial integrity or political independence of another state. Uh, and if we even go to Article 27, uh, it says that there's nothing in the convention uh, that permits um, you know, UN member states to interfere in uh, the affairs of other states, except two to situations uh, that would permit it, and that's uh, self-defense under Article 51, and with Security Council authorization uh, under Chapter 7. Um, so ultimately, what I was looking for, does the Genocide Convention actually change the uh, jurisdictional framework because if it doesn't explicitly do so then the genocide convention uh, was negotiated in this system of territorial jurisdiction um and you know as i hope i show in the book uh through the negotiations through the uh elimination of certain language from the early drafts of the genocide convention that these negotiating parties worked to ensure that we have a system of territorial preventive jurisdiction for the crime of genocide
1: Oh, yeah, Thank you for your answer. I think you really point to something important in your work. And this is what I found so useful um, for me in my thinking about, you know, when is it genocide, um, how might we prevent genocide and thinking about ways to present these big ideas to students. And it's your early chapters on the background of how the Genocide Convention came to be the document that it is today. So you've noted already that the protection of political groups was uh, removed as was a recognition of acts constituting cultural genocide. Why didn't these important protections make it into the final document? So you've alluded to the politics of the P5, but there's more going on there, I think.
2: Sure. So. Um... You know, the the omission of political groups uh was was quite contentious and it actually um didn't just begin with the state parties. Um there was disagreements uh among the drafters of the, the first uh draft of the convention, that's the secretariat draft. Um, you know, Raphael Lemkin, um, you know, who coined the term genocide, uh was seeking in some ways, I think, to be pragmatic. And and there's others who've written about this uh with the omission of uh, or with you know. With political groups. Uh, Wemkin was um, really seemed more convinced that cultural genocide was an essential element. Um, And part of this was, you know, Wemkin's view of of, uh, what can be called high culture, um, you know, the contributions to uh, world culture through arts uh, and and, uh, cultural heritage and so on. Um, But You know, the Soviet Union was, uh, for for reasons, again, I'm sure our listeners can imagine, was uh, strongly opposed to the inclusion of political groups. Um, And, you know, the United States was pushing and others were pushing for the, uh, you know, to keep culture, sorry, political groups in the convention. Um, And in some ways, it was ultimately a compromise. And I can get to cultural genocide in a moment, but um, that po- political groups and cultural genocide were both excluded from uh, the protections. You know, the Soviet Union at one point was, you know, basically arguing that the viability of the genocide convention would come into question uh, if political groups were included, and the United States did the same uh, with cultural genocide, um, and there were plausible arguments that uh parties gave for the exclusion of these elements of the the treaty um some argued that if political groups were included that you know it it would be used politically so essentially there could be a state that is dealing with an internal insurrection and it uses force to suppress that insurrection and they could be accused of committing genocide um against that political opposition group in their country Um, similarly, um, but differently, I suppose, you know, the United States and, and others argued that, you know, genocide is, uh, the, you know, they didn't use these terms, but the crime of crimes and to essentially, uh, equate genocide to the burning of books, uh, would be, um, would be ridiculous. Uh, and so they argued, um, you know, that uh, cultural genocide should be protected uh, or should be included in human rights treaties and not in the genocide convention um, because it does not deserve that same um, level of treatment of urgency and so on. Um, But the United States also uh, made the argument that the viability of the treaty would come into question uh, if cultural genocide were to be included. And actually, during the negotiation process, the United States was able to get cultural genocide put into a separate article from physical and biological genocide. This is during the ad hoc committee. Um, and then the United States still voted against the ad hoc committee draft, even with cultural genocide as its own article. Um uh, you know, I think uh, there's some interesting new research uh, that I need to look into further myself. But Anton Weiss went um, has, you know, included in a, a edited volume uh, called Genocide. I forget what the subtitle is. Um, that Stalin and the Soviet Union actually started to move toward. Um, allowing, you know, or supporting, I guess, loosely supporting political groups being included. Uh, but then the United States actually came out in, towards the end in opposition to the inclusion of political groups. Um, I don't know the direct connections right now, um, but we can think about um, things like the massive use of force, indiscriminate force that the United States used in uh, in Korea, in, in Vietnam. Uh, we could even look at Uh, Indonesia and the um, murder of 500,000 to a million communists or perceived communists. And of course, these things happened after the United States would have been uh, voiced opposition to the inclusion of political groups. But you could actually see the benefits even for the United States of uh, the omission of political groups from the treaty.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS?
1: Yeah, I think that's where your book is really a home run in the sense that it gives us the evidence that shows the extent to which not only did we have some actors sort of protecting their interests, whether knowingly or knowingly, we can talk about that in a different conversation, (laughs) but also the way the convention set up a a difficult framework of the concept. So genocide is um, this, but not that. Genocide can be solved in these ways, but not those ways. So you have like a Uh, I guess an elasticity problem to the concept, but also a limits and like, what exactly are the problems? And we see the US and others saying, well, it's not genocide in Tigray, it's not genocide in Zimbabwe. You think we committed genocide in Korea, come on now. Um, (laughs) And I find that the literature as you nodded to is actually moving in fascinating ways. And your book provides a great avenue into these um, bigger questions around violence and militarism. Um, the way that we predict or prevent or like prosecute genocide, but also some of the more recent things, you know, calls for cultural genocide reparation in Canada and Australia, for example, or um even ecocide, which is a word that has entered into our thinking in the last um, few years. So people thinking deeply about the problem of genocide are going to be well served by um, reading your book, particularly because of its omissions. I think you do a great job treating the, um, omissions. And with that, I want to pivot to like the ways that you demonstrate how powers, P5 powers in particular, avoided responsibility for instances of genocide in Pakistan, Bosnia, and Rwanda. So you alluded why those cases, but can you explain more about maybe one of these cases? We can go deep into Rwanda since it's a case we both know, but I think Pakistan is so interesting and was a complete surprise to me to learn about Pakistan and the way you presented it.
2: Sure. So, uh, you know, the case of Pakistan is, um, you know, 1971, um, typically March to December, um, are sort of the temporal, uh, boundaries. Um, so in 1970, there were elections in, in Pakistan that, um, led to, uh, a party, in, a party based in East Pakistan, for the first time gaining control of Parliament, and you know the. I should start. I should take one step back um, for our listeners who aren't familiar. Um, prior to uh, Bangladesh becoming an independent state, uh, Pakistan was, um, you know, was partitioned uh, with uh, West Pakistan in um, India and in East Pakistan uh, which is present-day Bangladesh and so uh, the administrative capital was was based in in the West and um the West refused to seat this uh this the, the, the uh, results of the elections uh there was then some talk of, of secession and um uh, Pakistan launched uh, I believe if I'm recalling correctly operation searchlight and um basically between uh, march and december of uh, 1971 uh you know the numbers vary as they tend to in in cases of political violence and genocide but upwards of a one to a million and a half people were killed uh there was a an, an american um uh, uh who's based in, in Dhaka who as early as late March, uh, referred to um, what was happening there as genocide, talked about how the term can be overused, but in this case it applies and uh, talked about witnessing um, you know, military going from house to house killing um, you know, you know, uh, sorry members of the population in, in East Pakistan. And this was coming at a time uh, when the United States and China were warming relations and um, so there was there was political reasons why the united states and china were especially opposed to um you know the, the use of the uh, i sorry, should say pakistan was an intermediary so uh, we're opposed to using the term genocide but you know what we see in this case is first is the security council completely ignored what was happening in, in pakistan and you know this was at a time when these kinds of things were very much seen as uh, matters uh, of the state internal disputes uh, civil unrest. Um, and so it really wasn't until uh till India intervened in, in in Pakistan that um you know that the Security Council became seized of the matter. Um but once it became seized of the matter, sorry that is Security Council uh like terminology just means that they began meeting on 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 the case, uh they really, you know, ran in circles trying to avoid recognizing uh what was happening in east pakistan as, as genocide and anything other than something in the uh that in internal matters for for pakistan to deal with uh you know china talked about you know guerrillas and, and insurrection and so on um there was actually explicit references to um things that were ultimately omitted from the genocide convention so if we go all the way back to you know to chapter one of the book um the there were t- there was language in the genocide convention that would have internationalized any case of genocide and what I mean by internationalized is even when a you know genocide is happening within a state's borders um, it would still be in the interest of the international community and within the responsibility of the United Nations and the Security Council to respond um, appropriately. And so uh, the early draft uh, talked about genocide being a threat to international order and peace um you know the United Nations its its mission is to maintain international peace and security and so you know I argue in the book that had language like that been retained then any case of genocide would have been uh, a matter for the you know the United Nations and the United Nations Security Council specifically Um, Of course, there's politics at the Security Council, which we've already kind of talked about. So I don't want to say that that's a panacea, um, but, you know, I'm sorry, I'm I'm a little bit all over the place, but Pakistan, um, you know, China and the United States really argued that this is an internal matter, it's not uh, of the interest of the international community, and if the international community were to get involved, it would be violating Pakistan's sovereignty, even as, uh, you know, one to one and a half million people were being killed, Uh, tens of thousands of women were raped in the the, uh, conflict and the genocide. Um, And so, you know, it was really only India. India talked about, like, what happened to the genocide convention? Why aren't we talking about what's happening in Pakistan in that manner and and using those terms? Um, But ultimately, it was the P5, in particular, the United States and China and, you know, France and the the United Kingdom to a lesser extent that repeatedly framed what was happening there as a political conflict uh, and that it was up to Pakistan to deal with it. There was even uh, one last thing I would say is there was even talk of in resolutions how uh, states should go back to their own borders. And this was a clear reference to India, you know, getting out of Pakistan um, because, you know, even East Pakistan is still part of Pakistan. So if India were to, you know, to be forced to to um, go back to, you know, outside of Pakistan, then it would have just allowed the genocide to continue.
1: I think you make, um, if I may summarize it just in the two points that I heard you make, you're speaking of like the relevance of domestic politics and the ways in which P5 was like, mm, that's not an us problem, um, to put it in that language. And then, of course, avoiding, sort of actively avoiding this international responsibility using, of course, state sovereignty as a cover. And we haven't talked about state sovereignty yet. And it's obviously pretty important as we move to the end of your book, the the responsibility to protect doctrine. Do you see any relevance for the responsibility to protect doctrine, you know, today, 2023, when we've seen... It's ups and downs, and the way it's not been able to actually find its footing because of the concept of um, state sovereignty, but also the ways in which the P5 is like, mm, let's not call that what it is because mm-hmm. we don't understand the context, even though they, of course, have a stake in the, um, those situations, such as Pakistan, Bosnia, or um, Rwanda.
2: Sure. So you know, you know, I mentioned before the. one chapter the fifth chapter talks about how r2p fills some of the deficiencies in the genocide convention um you know groups genocide with other mass atrocity crimes and so it uh, you know does include things like ethnic cleansing war crimes crimes against humanity um so you can actually see where say the case of pakistan under r2p would r2p could be applied to that um but you know as as you alluded to the the politics of the p5 um, still ultimately get in the way. And I think, you know, there's this common narrative about R2P that uh, Russia and China are spoilers and that the United States, uh, France, and United Kingdom are, are upstanders. But if you look at the resolutions that invoke R2P, Russia and China you know, veto R2P type resolutions much less than I think the perception would have us believe. Uh, that doesn't mean that they don't do that. And uh, there was many, uh, there were many vetoes around Syria. Um, but basically, you know, Russia and China, as long as their interests aren't threatened, and as long as the resolution that invokes R2P does not call for the use of military force, they're basically willing to stand, stand down, be out of the way, vote for it, uh, or in some cases abstain. Um, but they are not invokers of R2P. And so the United States, France, United Kingdom, um, as you know, the book shows in terms of number of resolutions that were sponsored by those states, are the invokers of R2P. But that means they control the application. And by controlling the application, their interests are not going to be threatened by R2P. <clears throat> and in the end, in, in a lot of ways, we have a situation where the P5, their interests won't be threatened because it'll either be vetoed or it won't be applied against their interests at all. Um, and that's why we see that R two P has been overwhelmingly applied in the African context. Um, you know so R two P, um, you know, a lot of the debate ultimately is around. Um, I, I think in the literature where, it's, where it gets critical, of R two P uh, is one thing. Uh, it's selective application. Um, so there's questions. Well, why not R two P in uh, the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, when, from 1996 uh, forward, millions and millions of people have been killed? Um, but we do intervene in places like like Libya, um, and of course, this was if we want to you know get into the question of sovereignty. Obviously, this was against uh, Libya's. Um, interest Libya did not um, agree to have uh NATO and and you know and, and the United States as part of NATO intervene uh in the civil conflict in Libya um you know is not applied uh to say Saudi Arabia and its actions in Yemen um, and we could look at you know reasons for this including the United States support for uh the Saudi Coalition in, in Yemen um and so you know I think sovereignty, it's interesting sovereignty is something that is invoked I think when we don't want to do something and then sovereignty doesn't ultimately matter when we do want to do something
1: so if you think about Bosnia and Rwanda are those examples of where sovereignty was instrumentalized or is those examples of like well something big is happening and we 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 intervened in one case and didn't intervene in the other case now what So this is just off the record. I'm just curious about that because my my ultimate question, I think, and this maybe is back on the record. R2P has not done the work that it was designed to do in kind of the same way as the genocide convention um, has. So like, are we in a a hopeful movement, a hopeful moment, I'm sorry, to protect civilians, which is what I understand both documents to fundamentally be doing? Um, Or is it um, a moment when the international system is sort of realigning and R2P is the best we can do with the politics that we have. Is the responsibility to protect document that has emerged out of this non-intervention trend the best we can do politically, given the the system that we find ourselves in?
2: Okay, yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think uh, R2P is in a, um, in a sort of wimbo situation. Um, and I, I say that for for a couple reasons. Um, you know, Russia and China did not block uh, the military intervention in in Libya, and there's various political reasons uh, I think we could get into. Uh, but there was some general support uh, among uh, regional actors. Um, but the idea was that this was going to be a limited intervention; that this was going to be a you know essentially creating a buffer. Uh, between uh, liber- Libyan security forces and and Benghazi um and as we know it became much more than that um ultimately with the uh you know deposing of uh, Muammar Gaddafi including uh the execution of of Gaddafi uh, and very little uh stomach for taking hindsight and reflecting on the intervention in Libya Russia sought um you know, essentially a review of of the actions that were taken during the intervention. Uh, of course, there were numerous crimes committed by the, the rebels as well and continued. And, uh, you know, the intervention ultimately destabilized Libya in in ways that have seen terrible things happen there um and again i don't there doesn't seem to be a willingness to reflect on the mistakes um as well as the justifications that were used uh to justify the intervention and i think um this has really put r2p in a position where uh, i don't think russia and china are going to be willing to authorize an r2p based military intervention anytime uh soon and you know the question is this the best we can do. Um I think so uh politically because uh you know there the some of the motivation be- between behind R2P from some of the smaller actors, smaller state actors, was to create uh certain uh sort of criteria for how um you know states act and how we respond. Um and when we move from um, you know preventing uh, to responding and then to ultimately rebuilding after a uh, potential intervention, and you know Brazil famously put forward to uh, you know uh, uh, its own version of responsibility while protecting, um, in part based on what happened during the, the debate around Libya and then the ultimate intervention. Um, but if I take a step back, in 2005 at the world summit. Uh, you know, the international community supported two things around R2P. One was that, yes, you know, when states are unable to or or, are unwilling to or actually, you know, participating or organizing and planning uh, things like genocide, war crimes, and crimes against humanity, that the responsibility does fall on the other members of the international community. But that's one article, that's uh, Article 138. But Article 139 says... But we'll do this on a case-by-case basis, and this will still happen through the existing system, which has the Security Council as the body that determines how we respond to these types of threats. And so, you know, R2P on paper does some good things, um, but ultimately it doesn't avoid the politics of the Security Council. Um, Actually, even the doctrine itself talks about how um, R2P, you know, P5 should not veto uh, situations around R2P unless it's in their interest to do so. And then we have to think about well, what are the P5 interests? Is the United States only interested in what happens within its borders, or does it have its hands all over the world? Uh, and we can ask the same things about China, Russia, France, and the United Kingdom. And if we think about this then as a web, if we think about okay, the P5, will not use the veto, they will not stand in the way of uh, intervention to stop these mass atrocity crimes, except when it's in, you know, they subject subject to their interest. Well, if we draw lines from each of those states to areas that of our economic, political or security interest to those, I mean, it's a gigantic web that essentially eliminates so much of the world um, from, you know, these R2P type situations, uh, even if they're committing genocide, because, These states have vast national interests, Um, and so you know I think it basically paralyzes us in some ways. And I don't want to, you know, I want to note that I'm, I'm uh, weary of uh, of military force, especially by states um, when they're volunteering to get involved in another state's affairs, because these are not usually altruistic motives when states are doing this. they have interests and uh, you know, when their motives are ulterior to just simply, you know, protecting um, the people who are at risk, uh, you know, this creates or can create, you know, worse situations than uh, that are already there.
1: I think that's a great answer to begin to wrap up because of course, like it's not particularly hopeful, but it is um, I think really the, the, the crux of your book. And it does point to some of your case studies being these military forces Rwanda, for example, sends peacekeepers all over the continent, the African continent, and is currently mixed up in Mozambique and has caused all sorts of hardship for civilians in Mozambique. So even um, victim states, to use that language, can also become um, perpetrator states. And I'm thinking here of like Mahmoud Mamdani's book. And that's how I'd like to end. We've covered a lot. We didn't unpack everything just because time is a factor. Do you have a book or an article or a podcast or some text that you might recommend for listeners wanting to learn more about your the ideas that um the politics of genocide have germinated?
2: Uh sure. So uh as you know, I'm also a new books network podcast host. So um if listeners are interested in um hearing some of the interviews I've done with other uh genocide scholars, uh you can find that on New Books, uh New New, new Books and Genocide Studies. Um you know a, a book that has been really influential to me right now um and so i'm working on an edited volume called genocide the path ahead um which takes a look at you know the evolution of, of genocide and therefore the need to you know for genocide studies to evolve um, based on threats uh to group life and so on over the next uh, 10 to 20 years um that won't be out for uh you know probably at least a year now um but Dirk Moses's the the problems of genocide, permanent security, and the language of transgression is something that I've been marinating on for some time now. Um, I actually interviewed Dirk uh, for this, so if you don't want to read a 500 or so page book, you can always check out the uh, the interview I had with Dirk on New Books Network.
1: That's great. I also find in my own work that um, Dirk Moses's work is a great source of inspiration to me too. So I'm glad you brought his work into the conversation, Jeff. Thanks so
2: much. It's been lovely. Thank you, Susan. Thanks for having me.